Welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, where we celebrate the craft of poetry. Each week, we feature interviews with incredible poets and artists, including Olivia Gatwood and A.E. Stallings, and original poetry read by the authors. I'm your host, James Moorhead, poet laureate of Dublin, California, and author of Canvas and Portraits of Red and Gray. Olivia Gatwood is an internationally recognized poet and author of Life of the Party and New American Best Friend. Her poetry performances and workshops held at over 200 schools and universities and videos online have reached millions of viewers. Olivia has also worked as a Title IX compliant educator in sexual assault prevention and recovery. I'm thrilled to welcome Olivia Gatwood to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. Hi, James. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Thanks for virtually meeting in my recording studio, also known as my closet. Yeah, totally. <laughs> All right, well, I first read Life of the Party a couple of years ago. To prepare for this interview, I listened to the audiobook version while on a road trip to L.A. It was so interesting hearing your poems performed and then going back to read them in your book. The Lover is Tapeworm is a good example, which is visualized as a concrete poem. How do you approach turning poems into performances? And how does performing a poem influence what you write? You know, I think that I think sometimes the those two genres, you know, spoken word and written word are seen as two different mediums almost. Um, and I think there's ways in which they can be. So certain poems require a performance, poems that use different kind elements of sound, poems that take on a certain persona and require a specific voice. Um, but I think actually at, at its best, the two poems are, or two poems, one poem that's read both ways are kind of like functioning symbiotically and are experienced differently, but still just as, you know, exciting and, and in, engaging in, in both forms. So um, what I do, how I approach it is, I'll just use some examples. Ode to Women on Long Island utilizes voice a lot. I'm, I'm doing an accent and I'm doing a persona. And so I struggled with how to translate that onto paper. Um, and what I had to accept is that some amount of it was going to be lost. Not everyone knows what a Long Island accent sounds like. Not everyone knows how it can do one, right? Um, so what I did instead is I made it clear that those parts where I do the voice of the women on Long Island were italicized and separated just to, just to communicate to a reader that a different speaker um, is present. Uh, and then, you know, Lover as a Tapeworm is, is very much a poem that exists on the page first and foremost because it's formatted in kind of the shape of a tapeworm. It's long, it's thin, there's one to two words on each line. And that was kind of me just being really playful. I also found myself, though, strangely enough, I wrote the poem in that form first. And then when I started to read it aloud, I would read it in that way too. I would kind of, you know, like everything I put inside of myself, like I did that, I read it in this almost like, I don't know, this kind of like, like fall, I was like falling from line to line sort of. Um, so anyway, I think it's really valuable for us to understand that, that writing a poem and having it exist on the page 
and performing a poem offer different things, but no poem has to be exclusive to one form. It's just about recognizing that there's going to be things you lose and there's going to be things you gain in each form and really trying to approach them differently and and just figure out the best way for the poem to exist in that specific space. Well, I certainly recommend for anyone who bought Life of a Party a few years ago, go and get the audiobook and listen to it because that's a perfect way of articulating that they both communicate in a in distinct and complementary ways. Very cool. So Life of the Party starts with an author's note that is so much more than a note. It's an essay on violence against women, the biased lens of true crime, and the shared fear that both instill. Uh, you weave in the tragic stories of a babysitter and Eileen Wernos into your book. How did you approach editing your poems into a cohesive narrative, which I think you've done more so than many of the poetry books I've read recently, which are more collections. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that order is very important to me, I think, because I have always felt more like a storyteller than anything else. I feel like I, and when I say that, I don't mean necessarily a storyteller like that, like as a, you know, necessarily that that's like my profession or my medium, but I think I think of things in stories. I think I think of memories very chronologically. I think of my life very chronologically. I always am thinking of what led to what. And so I think that's kind of just how my brain works. But additionally, when I was writing this book, maybe because of that, and also because of the nature of the content, I really had to go back into my life and kind of go on an investigative journey about my relationship to fear, my relationship to this genre, what parts of my fear were a product of media and what parts of my fear were a product of my own life. So I did have to go back to the beginning. Um, and I think it's valuable for any writer to think about how best to any poet, especially to think about how, how best to, you know, unfold their poems because poems can be, they can totally be sporadic. Like you absolutely don't need to order poems in a certain way, but I do think it's a fun challenge because I think sometimes people assume poetry collections don't need that or poetry collections don't require that. And I actually think laying out your poems can in some ways honor the project in a way that maybe poets don't always get credit for, you know, in a way that novelists do. And so um, anyway, I, I, I was going, I was writing pretty chronologically already, but then I went and what many poets do when they're ordering their poems is they print them out and they lay them out in like a tiled floor. Um, that ended up being kind of too big. And so I put the titles on post-it notes and put them up on my wall. Um, and then I could just kind of play, you know, rearrange them. Um, and every day I would look at it and be like, oh no, that poem shouldn't go there because it was about chrono chronolo chrono chronology, chronology. But then it was also um, about what poem was leading into the next, like what it, what it sounded like and what a reader's experience was. And am I kind of like hitting a reader over the head to, much with this idea and maybe I need to relieve them a little bit. Maybe I need to like give them some light. Maybe I need to leave them on a note of hope. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's, I think a really worthwhile process for poets to consider poets who don't, who don't do that. You know, it's for my first book that no one was really giving me direction. And that's, I started doing it in a big Google doc and it was just totally unworkable. I just couldn't see everything and mm -hmm. you have to physically print it out. And then I had them on my, 
family room floor for like a week where I was just moving them around and putting placeholders and figuring out what am I, am I in number sections or call it, it. Yeah. That's, it's interesting. Yeah. I've talked yeah, to several poets that. who have done that. So, and actually you kind of answered my next question, but I'll just bring it, bring it out a little bit. So, you know, there are moments that are exquisitely beautiful, such as girl moments that are raw and unflinching, like Ode to my bitch face moments of humor. You mentioned Ode to the women of, on Long Island moments that are brutal, like body count 13 and man's laughter or manslaughter. And uh, you kind of touched on this. How did you maybe to go a little deeper? How did you know you were getting the balance right between, you know, hitting the reader over the head and giving them a chance to take a breath? I think that ultimately I had to touch base with myself because I can't know exactly what you can't make yourself write a poem, you know, just for the sake of digestibility. I mean, I guess you can, but you're probably not going to write the best poem. Um, I think for my own self care, I had to start writing some lighter poems because life of the party is very heavy and it's a lot heavier than it's, it's definitely a snapshot into a really kind of difficult time in my life. It was, really hard to write that book and I was already in kind of a dark place and then writing that book thrust me like any writer I was suddenly just you know swallowed by the world of true crime because I was I was kind of researching it now and I was so I was reading it even more than I did before and I was thinking about it so critically and um and so I think that I started to have to be really aware of how I felt when I was experiencing the book I saw something uh, recently that was a little, you know, made me, um, a little nervous, but was, I think the tough love I needed to hear, which was like, if you are reading back a part of your book and you're feeling bored, it's not because you've read it a million times. It's because it's boring. Mm -hmm. And I don't totally agree with that. I do think, you know, I'm writing a novel right now and I've probably read it over 200 times. I do think my experience of the novel is probably different than a first time reader. Um, but I also think there's no harm in holding yourself to that standard. And because it's really invigorating, no matter how many times you've read something you wrote, if it's really good, reading it again always feels good. So anyway, I kind of had to have that same process with the book where it was like, all right, if I'm reading this and feeling like, fuck, this is like hard and heavy, like maybe I need, maybe I owe that to myself. Maybe I need that moment of lightness. So, you know, it was helpful to, it was kind of a, uh, it was it was healthy for me to do that. So after performances, which I saw you in Berkeley, it was fabulous. Um, you were very generous and spent time with your audience. Um, what have you learned from readers who have been affected by the themes you write about in your poetry? And I'll give you a personal example is when I was writing my book, um, I had read uh, your book recently and uh, it brought back, I thought of some memories that I had, particularly one where I was mugged at the age of 10 by a gang of like 12 kids, um, empty subway station, hand over my mouth, about to be pulled down the stairs and then let go by somebody spooking them. And I'm not really sure who, because it's kind of a, I, I really don't remember very much after it happened. I remember everything up to the point where it happened. And then the rest is a bit of a blur. So writing that poem was Woo, super hard because I had to relive the experience, but it was very helpful to relive, get it, almost get it out of me and onto paper. So what, what have you, so that was my experience, like kind of taking inspiration from your approach, but what have you heard from other readers and listeners? You know, I think it's something really similar. I think that it, I think there's a way that writing the 
poem releases something from you. And it doesn't mean that that thing is gone, as you know, but I do think being able to verbalize something helps you understand it. And I think when you understand something, it becomes less scary or, or you have maybe a more distant relationship to it. So my therapist describes trauma as an event that is over, but your brain hasn't told you it's ended. So your brain has convinced you that it's still happening. Um, and I thought that was like a really simple and beautiful way of describing it. And I think sometimes writing the poem can teach your brain that it's ended, you know, and, and, and it's ha while you're writing the poem, ironically, while you're writing it, it's happening while you're writing it, you're in it again. And you're like, Oh my God, like, you're you're absolutely you, but you kind of have to rerun through it and then it's there on this piece of paper and it's like wow yeah that event is a part of my past now um and so i think that that the book functioned that way for me for sure um when i finished it and i was able to kind of move on from that time in my life and i've heard similar things from readers that that either reading the poems or writing the poems themselves. And often people will read the poems and then write their own poems, like you said. And I think that's such a, I think the feeling of fear and the feeling and the experience of violence is so common and universal. And so many people, no matter how different their experiences were, have such a similar emotional reaction. I think it pulls really similar things from us. So, yeah. Yeah. So the, um, Again, I saw you perform in Berkeley and the audience was just this lean in attentiveness. There was a pin drop, like everyone was collectively not wanting to miss a word, except when they were given permission to laugh, which there were several times. So how did you develop the skill of holding an audience's attention? Because I don't think we're born with it. This is a skill. And yeah. uh, what mistakes helped you find your voice? That's a good question. The Berkeley show was so amazing. Um, and that is one element of performing that can be really exciting and also really hard is your audience matters. It does. I mean, a good, an expert performer will perform the same no matter what, but when you feel good and when something's being given back to you, it's, it becomes more of a conversation. It's just good to be validated. It's scary to get on stage. And when you feel like no one's there, you feel like people aren't listening or you feel like they don't get it like that. I mean, that would affect anyone. So not for nothing, the Berkeley audience was particularly engaging and and excited and funny and attentive. And so that was that contributes. But I was not a public speaker. I was not a stage child. I was very shy for a long time, um, very self-conscious. I was an athlete. I was not a performer in any way. And then I, when I started writing poetry, it just felt so instinctual to read it aloud. It wasn't that I wanted to be on a stage. It wasn't that I wanted people to listen to me. It was like this, ha I have to read this aloud because I there's a way it needs to be read. And if I'm not the one reading it, then it's going to be read wrong, which I also had to let go of when I started writing books, but that's what prompted it. And so I have been performing poetry since I was, you know, 16. And so over the years, I, 
I, it became kind of just a matter of practice of getting on as many stages as possible, getting comfortable with the sound of your own voice, getting comfortable with your breathing patterns, um, understanding, you know, reading your poems aloud to yourself as much as you can. I used to read them aloud to myself in the shower and when I was driving, just to like memorize them like songs. Um, but then when I really started to hone in on it, on especially like improvising and holding an audience throughout a show, was when I started speaking at college campuses doing lectures because I had to think on my feet. And I think the biggest thing, I think the two biggest things is A, honestly, like faking it until you make it. I think when you asked about mistakes, like my biggest mistake has been feeling that those nerves and then letting them just take over my body and instead recognizing what looks like fear. So your head is down, your voice is quiet, you know, all those things and just not doing them. Like even if you're feeling it, it's like lift up your head, raise your voice, use your hands. It's a dance. It's a performance. And so I think realizing that because I was, I have such bad, I actually do have stage fright, but I realized so much of what makes stage fright worse is when we show it. Um, and so I think it, over the years I've learned to, I've learned the kind of the signs of stage fright and how to hide them. And I think the second thing is trusting yourself. Um, I think with improv Im improvising, that's really important. I think recognizing that you knowing that you know the answer you are an expert in this topic that's why you're here that's why you're up here speaking about it because you understand it and just answering the question even if there's not a, an actual question being asked just showing up for the assignment um, and really trusting yourself not worrying about you know what the right answer is what people want to hear but having a conversation with the audience and i think that can be worked on honestly by talking to yourself. I talk to myself all the time. I talk to myself while I'm driving. I, I rehearse conversations because I, I have social anxiety and I like need to know, you know, I need to know that I know what to say. So anyway, I think um, those are, that's kind of an a all over the place answer, but. Oh no, that was, that was wonderful. There's so many things I'm going to pull away actually after seeing you perform and then I'd written poetry for so many years, but never really performed. It's like, I have to overcome this. This is, I, I, in my work life, I present to executives and stuff all the time. That's fine. I get nervous and inappropriate, but the, I felt self-conscious and I'm like, all right, that's my goal. And I know mm -hmm. that she didn't start at that level. Like she worked yeah. her way up. And, uh, and then I actually worked with a friend of my older daughters who was an MFA he ended up being, he, he, he does poetry reciting competitions. And so I hired him to be my poetry coach. Oh, cool. And it oh, was, well, that's a big one is I've had many coaches and those are so helpful. It's just so, cause it's a safe space, just two people. And he, and he knows he's already gotten to that skill level anyway. So that was really, totally. really, really no, coach helpful. is so valuable. And, and also, you know, improv classes, theater classes, like any uh, open mics, like any opportunity you can get to practice around people who are also practicing, it just makes a huge difference. Yeah, the open, the, the one, one, there's not a lot of benefits to the pandemic. One little benefit is the open mics are all virtual. So I've been dropping yes. into open mics all over the country just totally. to force myself to get out there. So, yeah. So uh, sometimes when I'm writing, in particular, when I'm in love with an idea, I'll step back and question if I found the poetry in the idea. 
Uh, your poem, If a Girl Screams in the Middle of the Night, has such a powerful idea with beautiful passages like this. And I apologize, I'm going to read a little passage. No, so. okay. <laughs> um, if she is face down in the moss, it seeps into the forest's floors, pores. And every time a hiker passes through, the days beyond her unravel and steps along the sponge green floor, a small howl will fan out from beneath his feet. Uh, it's just beautiful. But anyways, what is your approach to finding the poetry in an idea that you're in love with? So I think um, letting with that, po that poem is actually really different for me because it's kind of surrealist. And I don't think I let myself lean into surrealism enough in, in my life as a poet, because I was always taught that everything needed to be kind of like very serious and autobiographical. And I still love autobiographical poetry. I love poetry conversely that is really straightforward and tells a very simple story but i think um well this is kind of a two-part answer but for that poem in particular it was letting myself have an imagination and really go there and kind of imagine this whole you know just keep taking it step by step because i had this little idea that i think could have been i guess what it is is it could have been just a metaphor like i could have said or it, it could have been written as like a simile like you know this like her you know instead of literally saying that her scream was sell, sold to a thrift store and sent to a landfill i could have not done that so literally and instead you know made it clear that i was doing a simile or whatever but instead what i did is i lived into it as if it was an actual story and i thought that i think that is an encouraging practice to just challenge yourself as a poet to like move away from being like this thing is like this other thing and instead just being like no this thing is this and pushing people to have that imagination pushing people to get weird pushing people to dive into you know to just strange fictional stories um but i think additionally with in general the way that i know that there's poetry in something is when I, I think is when I just can't stop thinking about it. Um, when a memory is nagging at me, when a story is one that won't leave me, I recognize, oh, there's something here. And then the way that I approach that is by really diving into the sensory experience of that thing. Because usually for me, that's where the poetry is. Um, whatever, I, I try to build out the scene in a sensory way. I don't know. That's a. I'd have to think. That's a complicated answer. Again, that's a good question, but I haven't. I haven't rehearsed it to myself yet. <laughs> <laughs> so just uh, just one more thing. So I'm I'm waiting for your novel in anticipation, as I know many of your readers are of cracking the spine for the first page, and. I'm really curious how poetry has influenced your prose. And I'm thinking in particular about a writer I love, Canadian author and poet, Michael Ondaatje. He writes very challenging poetry, very beautiful poetry. And his novels are challenging too, but they're clearly influenced by his ability as a poet. So are poetic devices finding their way into your prose? 100%. Um, I have, this novel has been the hardest thing I've ever written because I realized one thing poetry doesn't teach you is how to finish a sentence. <laughs> so finishing sentences and like getting like transitions are the hardest. I'm like, wait, I have to explain how this person like went to the bathroom. Like that's so boring. Like how do I make that interesting? Something I've learned is, is in a lot of novels I've been reading that aren't written by poets, those lines 
are it's a the the author has accepted that those lines are boring but my favorite novels are the ones where there is there are no boring lines there's mm-hmm. every line and it, and it's not necessarily flowery and over the top but that every word feels really considered which i think is something you learn in poetry so often poets are my favorite novelists um i love that i love when poets write novels so my novel 100% has poetic devices. I don't know how to think without thinking in simile and metaphor. I don't know how to describe things without without describing it, you know, in that sensory way. And so um, hopefully, you know, that resonates with people, but that's the only way I know how to write. So. So, Olivia, thank you so much for taking a few minutes from your from your day away from your writing and all the other things you're working on to share your time with the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. It's been a thrill talking to you. Of course. Thank you so much for having me and good luck on your writing. Right, thank you. The Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Twitter at Dublin Ranch, subscribe to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, and follow us on viewlesswings.com or on Instagram at viewlesswings. <laughs>